The story of Olaf the Peacock and Killachrap. Evening came early in the winter, and snow was on the ground. Olaf stood in the doorway of the turf hut, huffing onto his hands and stamping his feet. The housecarl who looked after the pregnant cows was late again. Olaf could not understand what was wrong with the man. When he had set up the homestead not long ago, the man had come highly recommended as someone reliable and hard-working. But Olaf was not seeing much evidence of that at the moment. Finally the man appeared, trudging head down through the snow. "'It's about time!' exclaimed Olaf. "'My apologies,' said the man. He took a deep breath, apparently stealing himself to say something. "'Sir,' he said, "'I have a favour to ask you, if I may.' Olaf nodded and the man carried on. "'I ask, sir, if you could, that you set me aside for some other work "'and send some other man to look after the dry cattle. "'If you would be so good, please.' Olaf folded his arms and frowned. His first instinct was to order the man to do as he was bloody well told, but he bit his lip. This man had an excellent reputation and was no trouble otherwise. Everyone else is already employed, he said reasonably instead. Everyone knows their role and how to perform it. I do not want to have to reorganise the homestead now, in winter, when we need to be focused on survival. I need you to carry on doing the job I have asked you to do. "'Sir,' said the man, standing straight and tall, "'I would rather take my chances wandering the wilderness in a blizzard "'than go back one more time to that cattlefold.' "'Olaf stared at the man for a minute or so, "'but the house carl stood firm. He was serious. "'Wait here,' said Olaf, and he ducked inside the house. "'What's the matter?' asked Thorgerd as he stomped inside, "'his braided sleeves damp and snowflecked. "'She was busy trying to get the toddler to sleep "'and asking mainly out of politeness.' Some kind of problem out at the dry cattle fold, he mumbled. No idea what. Thought I'd better be prepared. No idea what for, but no sense getting caught unarmed by something. I told you there was a reason this land was so cheap, said Thorgerd unhelpfully, and she went back to singing to their little girl. Olaf went over to the chest and pulled out the sword and spear with gold decoration given to him by his grandfather and looked intently at both. He saw the face of the Irish king in his mind's eye, the eyes so like his mother's. Gripping the handle of the sword, he felt that familiar, comforting feeling of knowing he'd belonged that he had felt so briefly there, before a glance at his royal Irish uncles reminded him that he did not truly belong anywhere. He thought for a moment. This seemed a simple enough job, whatever the problem was in this wolf-free country. He put down the sword and tucked the spear under his arm. Right, he said to the housecarl when he emerged once again from the turf hut. You obviously think there is something seriously wrong at the cattle fold, so I will come with you to tie up the cattle tonight, and if I come across anything not right, I will let this matter go and we will solve it together. But if there is no reason for this stubbornness on your part, you will be punished. The man stood tall, shoulders set, and turned towards the cattle fold with Olaf. He certainly seemed confident that Olaf would understand his request, did not seem entirely a good thing at that moment. The two men walked together in silence through the thick snow. The distant mountains loomed as darker shadows against the darkening sky, and they could just about hear the waves of the sea lapping at the shore. Olaf could smell the familiar smell of a cold beach at night, all salt air and wet rocks and the rotting egg's touch of old seaweed. It reminded him of Ireland. Eventually they reached the cattle fold. The fold itself was open and the dry cattle were still scattered about, poking their noses through the snow in search of grass. I will drive up the cattle, Olaf told the housecarl. 
You tie them up as they come in. The housecarl opened his mouth as if to object, but shut it again nervously. He turned towards the cattlefold, but did not move. Rolling his eyes, Olaf came up beside the man and walked with him over to the door of the fold. He was about to turn around to fetch the cattle, when to his shock the man yelped and leapt up into Olaf's arms like a frightened child. "'What in the name of God is the matter, man?' cried Olaf, stumbling backwards. "'I felt him! I felt him touch me!' cried the man. Olaf dropped him to the ground and the man huddled, shivering in the snow. "'Please explain,' said Olaf, as patiently as possible. "'It is the ghost of Killachrap,' moaned the housecarl. "'Do you not remember, sir? "'The old owner of this land who caused so much trouble years ago. "'Your father, Hoskuld, had him moved away into the hillsides "'where he thought the cows would not go. "'He meant to end the haunting, but it never ended, "'and now he is back. "'The vile old man stands in the doorway to the cattlefold. "'I am tired of wrestling him night after night "'just to get the cows home. "'I am done. "'I will not do it any more.' Olaf racked his brains, trying to remember his father moving an undead revenant around. A dim memory of some unrest around a grumpy ghost from when he was a young boy resurfaced, but it had not made much impression on him at the time. "'All right, man,' he said to the housecarl, "'wait here.' Olaf strode forward, spear in hand, into the doorway of the cattlefold. A figure rose up before him in the darkness. It was in the shape of a man with a long beard— and what Olaf could make out of his skin was wrinkled and tough like leather. The face wore a snarling expression, yellowed teeth exposed in a grimace, thick grey eyebrows furrowed. Olaf thrust his spear forward, aiming for the grey figure, but Kilachrap took the spear in both hands before it reached his body and wrenched it so sharply that the shaft broke altogether, leaving Olaf standing holding the shaft while the creature held the spear point in his own hands. Furious, Olaf came at the monster once again, intending to beat the revenant over the head with the shaft of the spear until he backed down, but he did not get the chance, for Kilachrap suddenly vanished, the spearhead along with him. Olaf screamed his anger into the night, but it was no good. The ghost had gone. Olaf tied up the dry cattle as quickly as possible and returned, shoulders slumped, to the housecarl, who remained hunched in the snow. "'I do not blame you for your request.' "'or for refusing to work here any longer,' said Olaf. "'I only wonder that it seems to have taken you some time to make the request. "'If I assure you that I will rid us of this monster, "'will you then willingly come back here and return to your work?' "'Willingly,' agreed the man, standing up. "'Then I will find a way to rid us of this menace,' said Olaf. "'I think I had better start by talking to my father.' Having left the nervous housecarl to watch over his wife and daughter, though Olaf suspected it would be more a case of his wife watching over the housecarl, Olaf arrived at his father's longhouse, gold-gilt sword in hand, at the height of the short winter day. Nodding to his legitimate younger half-brothers as he went in, he sat down for a few moments in front of the long fire to warm up. A glum-looking, weather-beaten man sat next to him, whom he did not recognise. Olaf introduced himself and asked the man what brought him to his father's hall. I am Goodmund, said the man. I was a housecarl for Thorstein Swart, but I have not been able to find steady work since he died. People think I am cursed. Are you? asked Olaf. Ask your father, said Goodmund bitterly. He claimed to have laid the ghost long before the curse fell upon me. He left the job only half done, and myself and all of Thorstein's household paid the price. 
Does this have something to do with the ghost of a man called Killer Hrap? asked Olaf, his heart sinking. I see you have heard of him, said Goodmund. That's not surprising. He was a vile old man in life and he is a vile old troll in death and there is a curse on his land and his wealth. Olaf felt a chill down his spine and he gripped his golden sword harder. But Goodman did not notice, and now that he had started the tale of his woes, he seemed keen to carry on. Killer was the brother-in-law of my master, Thorstein, Goodman explained. Hrapp's son Sumalid inherited his land and his goods, but died of a frenzy the following year. The wealth all went to Hrapp's widow, Vigdis, but she did not want it. She had fled to her brother Thorstein almost as soon as her wretched husband died and wanted nothing to do with any of it. So Thorstein took the goods for himself and decided to give over his own homestead to his kinsmen and set himself up on Hrapp's land. It was good land, and there was a lot of it. I know, muttered Olaf, but Goodman did not notice. So we set sail for Hrapstead, Goodman carried on. Thorstein went with his daughter and son-in-law and their little daughter, and twelve men, including myself. But that journey was cursed from the start. We should have known, we should have turned back. The winds were against us and the boat was overloaded with cargo with all the things we were bringing with us to our new home. We took shelter in a bay to wait for the tide and try again and the whole time we were there we were tormented by a strange seal that kept swimming around the ship and poking up its head to stare at us. It was much larger than the other seals and its eyes, they were human eyes, human eyes staring out of a huge seal's head. He shuddered at the memory. The tide rose, Goodman continued quietly, and we refloated the boat. But just as we were getting back on the water, a violent squall rose up out of nowhere. Everything went spinning and turned upside down. I was thrown off the deck and into the water, and it was all I could do to grab a bit of timber and hold on for dear life, kicking my legs madly to keep afloat, until I got lucky and washed up on the shore. I looked back, and our ship was upside down in the water, and I was alone. Everyone else had drowned. I am sorry, said Olaf, the words feeling inadequate. That was only the start of my troubles, said Goodmund. Thorstein left behind another daughter, Gudrid, and his son-in-law, Thorarin, had surviving kinsmen as well. So a disagreement broke out over who was entitled to this wretched, cursed wealth of Hrapps, since Vigdis wanted it even less than before, if that were possible. If Thorstein drowned first then his daughter and granddaughter and then the son-in-law last, then it all belonged to Thorarin's kin, son-in-law. If Thorstein drowned first, then Thorarin, then the little girl and then Thorstein's daughter last of all, it belonged to the surviving daughter Gudrid. And everyone knew I had survived the shipwreck so they were all after me, wanting to know who had drowned first, which of course, I have no idea. I was flung from the ship and fighting for my life. What did you do? asked Olaf. I let Gudrid's husband Thorkel pay me to tell everyone what he wanted, said Goodman in a low voice. What else could I do? So I told everyone that Thorstein died first, then Thorarin, the son-in-law, then the little girl, and then the daughter. So everything went to Gudrid, but actually it all went to Thorkel, her husband. I remember Thorkel, said Olaf, thinking of the man who had gleefully sold him the land. He seemed shrewd. He is, said Goodman. He took the goods but abandoned the land, and so has avoided the curse. But here am I, and no one will hire me because they think I am cursed, or because they think I lied about my master's death. It wasn't a lie, 
For all I know, they did die just the way I said they did. Anyway, I've heard that the land is sold again, so I have no doubt the story is not over. I just want reparation from your father, who claimed to have laid the ghost before any of this, but left the job unfinished. Olaf was about to reassure the man he would put in a good word with his father when Hoskald himself appeared, Olaf's brothers having told him he was there. "'Good to see you, son,' his father explained. "'What brings you here in this weather?' He gestured vaguely to the outside. The weather was not too bad, bright and calm, but the snow still lay thick on the ground. "'Good to see you too,' said Olaf. "'But I'm afraid myself and this man here,' he gestured to Goodmund, "'have a bit of a bone to pick with you, literally.' Hoskald raised an eyebrow and sat down. Really, he said, do tell. Goodman looked up sharply, excitement and hope in his eyes, but wisely he kept quiet. Did you know the land at Hrapstead was cursed and haunted when you let me buy it? demanded Olaf. Ah, said Hoskald. Well, I knew it had been haunted, of course, but I took care of that. But you know that you didn't, protested Olaf. You knew the man I was buying it from, Thorkell. You must have known that he was not the original heir, and that there was a trail of bodies in the wake of this killer Hrapp who once owned it. A trail of bodies? questioned Hoskald. Tell him, Goodman, said Olaf, and he had Goodman repeat the story to Hoskald, who listened with a grim expression. So to sum up, said Olaf, when Goodman had finished, this land has gone through the son, Sumalid, the brother-in-law, Thorstein, Thorstein's son-in-law, Thorarin, his young granddaughter and his first daughter, before finally coming to the second daughter, Gudrid, and her husband, Thorkel, who have only avoided the curse by not living there. And you let me buy it and move my wife and little daughter there. Olaf found he had stood up in his anger and even had his hand on the golden sword his mother's father had given him. Do you not love me, father? he asked, pleading. Am I not of value to you? Of course I love you, said Hoskald. You are the best of my sons and the grandson of a king besides. You are my most worthy heir. Olaf glanced up nervously to see if his brothers had heard that. They had not. Hoskald gestured to him to sit down and addressed both him and Goodmund. I swear to you, I thought the homestead had been freed of this ghost, he said. When Killerhrap was dying... He ordered his wife Vigdis to bury him, not in the graveyard, but in the very doorway of his home. He told her she must bury him standing upright in the turf in the doorway of his fire hall so that he could keep watch on his home and his land even after death. Vigdis was terrified of the man both in life and even afterwards, so she did as he told her. The trouble started straight away. Krupp's death and burial was followed very quickly by the deaths of every single one of his servants, and these were not natural deaths. They were all murdered by Krupp himself, returned to haunt and guard his land against all comers, even his own servants. He did not stop at his own household either, for he was constantly harassing and attacking his neighbours too. Vigdis could take it no more and fled to her brother Thorstein, and her son Sumalid, who had inherited, came to me for help. You were about twelve years old, do you remember? Not really, Olaf admitted. Lots of men came to you for help, and you often went to help them. And it was about then I left to go live with my foster family, so I could build an inheritance for myself. Ah, yes, that is true, said Hoskald. Well, anyway, I went to Hrapstead, and I dug the ridiculous old man's corpse out of his doorway. He was completely undecayed, but that did not make the job any more pleasant. He was an ugly old man anyway, and the body was still cold, waxy-skinned and dead. 
I had him buried sensibly and normally underground. I chose a spot that was far away in the lower slopes of the mountains where the cattle would not roam. And as far as I knew, that was the end of it. No more servants were killed, the neighbours no longer complained. He looked both younger men in the eye. I am sorry, he said. I had not connected the tragic deaths of Thorstein and his family with the ghost of Killerkrap. I should have finished the job. Yes, you should have, said Olaf, still rattled that his father could have put his family in danger through such negligence. Father, I think you owe this man a debt. Take him in and give him work. I must get back home and take care of this troll once and for all. I think my father said it was over here, said Olaf, trudging through the sludgy snow. He had brought the housecarl in charge of the dry cattle with him and had tried to take advantage of what light there was at this time of year by setting out at midday, but the sun was still stubbornly low in the sky and there was snow on the ground, not optimal conditions for finding a years-old rough grave. Here, sir, called the housecarl. Doesn't this look like a cairn to you? Might that be it? Yes, cried Olaf, scrambling over to the pile of stones the man was pointing to. The stones were a little weathered and one or two had slipped at the top, suggesting the cairn was built rather hastily, but it was clearly a cairn and a much more recent one than the ancient monuments he had seen in Ireland. Olaf and the housecarl got to work pulling apart the stones and then digging up the body buried underneath them. They spotted a hand first, poking up from the earth, thin and bony but undecayed, covered in leathery skin. Slowly they uncovered an arm and then a leg, and then the old man's wispy hair and beard emerged. Eventually they were able to haul out the whole body, stiff and cold but looking as if he had died yesterday, with big staring eyes that no one had bothered to close, or perhaps that no one had been able to close. Clutched in the hand that pinned underneath the body was Olaf's golden spearhead. Let's finish this, Olaf said to the housecarl. They brought the body down to the shore on a bier and built a pyre in the style of the ancient southern pagans. Olaf's wife Thorgid came out to watch, bringing their baby daughter so that the little girl could see how her parents worked to protect their home. They lit the pyre as the winter sun set and watched it burn all night, the toddler sleeping softly in her mother's lap. And when dawn came and the sun poked its head over the horizon, and the corpse had finally been reduced to bone and ashes, they took them and scattered the ashes into the outgoing tide. And that, finally, was the end of Killerkrap. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliette Harrison, and this is the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval, and early modern ghost stories, with episodes every two months. So my friend uh, Gemma had specifically asked for another um, Scandinavian uh, Norse ghost story, and uh, ask and ye shall receive. Um, so here we are with another of the Icelandic sagas. Uh, I lasted one of these, seems ages ago now, during covid um, I think it was May 2020, um, because there was an element of infection to the story. Uh, so finally, coming back to another story from the Icelandic sagas. This is uh, a genre of uh, Norse sagas called uh, Islendigasugur. 
I'm afraid my Icelandic pronunciation is not very good. Uh, they tell stories about early settlers and colonists in Iceland. And this is at the crossover between the Viking Age and the Age of Christianity. So this is from uh, Laxdala Saga or Laxdale Saga. It was written in the 13th century, but describing events from the 9th to 11th centuries. Uh, Iceland officially became Christian in the year roughly 1000 CE. This story is set about 50 years before that. So right at the end of the kind of pagan age, Olaf is Christian. Uh, this comes up later in the saga. He's an early Christian. And of course, the author of the saga is Christian. So although it describes some pagan ceremonies and some of the characters are pagans, um, the author themselves is Christian. So their knowledge of uh, pagan Norse religion maybe iffy. <laughs> Arman Jakobsen has called this particular saga uh, one primarily concerned with kings and courts, romance and love, manners and customs, riches and wealth. But like all the sagas, it also includes elements of what various scholars refer to as the paranormal or the supernatural, uh, basically ghosts, dreams and so on. Scholars have argued a lot about the nature and origin of the sagas and whether they are essentially textual and literary pieces or oral derived. So oral derived means uh, stories that are transmitted orally uh, or poems that are sung and composed as they're sung orally uh, for a long period of time before eventually somebody writes them down. I tend to lean toward that interpretation because that's the type of uh, epic poetry I'm familiar with from ancient Greek poetry, like the Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and from um, medieval English poetry like Beowulf. Uh, these we think are all probably oral derived. So I tend to assume that the same is true of these Icelandic sagas, um, but I don't really know enough to have an official opinion on it. Olaf the Peacock, the main character, is the illegitimate son of an Icelandic chieftain called Hoskuld and a slave girl Hoskuld had bought uh, in Norway, who turns out to be a kidnapped Irish princess. I've made a couple of allusions to some of the complicated family relations in the story, uh, but in the interest of focusing on the ghost of Hrap, I had to really kind of cut down the complicated family relations a bit because it gets quite complicated. Um, there's an awful lot of marriages and in-laws and Olaf is, of course, illegitimate. He has legitimate brothers and then his Irish grandfather is a king and he has uh, uncles who are the, son the legitimate sons of the king. And it's all yeah, terribly complicated. So I've made a few brief references to it. But because the focus of this story is not on uh, that side of things, although... Of course, the issue of inheritance does come into the story. So this issue of who's related to who, who is the heir of whom, is incredibly important throughout the saga for all of these characters. Um, I restructured the story a little bit. In the saga, the story is told in chronological order and there's lots of other stuff in between. So you have um, Hrap's death and the original haunting. And then you have Olaf travelling to Norway and to Ireland. And there's also... Uh, Thorstein and the shipwreck is in there and then Olaf comes back and it's all um, quite spread about. Uh, so I have focused entirely on the story of Hrapp and cut everything else. And I've also switched it around to something a bit more similar to a modern ghost story where usually with a modern ghost story you start with the haunting and then you have a protagonist who finds out the backstory. 
uh, and who finds out who the ghost is and why they're haunting. Whereas in medieval literature, it can be more common to see stories told from the death of the person through all the trouble their ghost causes to the eventual laying of the ghost. Um, at least in the stories I've read from the sagas, that's often the, the way it is. Ancient literature varies. The most famous ancient ghost story is in the, the modern pattern of there's a haunting, somebody goes to investigate, they find out what it is. Um, so you can come across either structure. Um, that's the, the haunted house story that I did on Halloween a few years ago. Uh, but I've restructured this to follow that setup rather than the saga's preference for and then Hrap died and then this happened and then this happened. I've also added the investigation section. So in the saga, Olaf's house Carl tells him that there's a problem and Hrap takes his spear point and then the next day he burns him and that's that. So I've added the investigation to tell the backstory. And the bit about Goodmund, the survivor of the shipwreck, being cursed is my addition. The rest of it is from the saga, including the whole bit about who inherits and Goodmund being forced by Thorkel to say that the people in the shipwreck died in a certain order. And the implication in the saga is very much that either Goodman's lying or he just doesn't know. But it says, you know, Thorkel told him to say it happened this way to make sure that Thorkel's wife inherits. So that's all original to the saga. I made a very brief reference to Olaf's braided sleeves. He gets his nickname Olaf the Peacock because he likes fancy clothing. And I couldn't really squeeze that in very easily. Um, but I had a brief reference to his braided sleeves to um, kind of connect to that. Uh, House Carl is a servant and dry cattle are cows, not lactating due to pregnancy, which I learned looking it up uh, for this story. So you learn all sorts of things researching stories like this. I did not know that before. Now, because the sagas are written so much later than the events they tell stories of, they're really more of a memory of the Viking Age rather than a direct testimony. So none of this is kind of, none of it's eyewitness, none of it's particularly contemporary. They're writing 400, 300, 200 years later. So it's the equivalent of somebody now writing about the English Civil War um, or the colonization of America or something. But they were, like all historical fiction, a genuine attempt to tell stories set in the past. So their relationship with the history that they're describing is quite complicated. They will include elements of genuine earlier medieval practice as set dressing. And they're also very aware that even though the authors are Christian, that their ancestors were not. Um, they know that the Vikings who settled Iceland originally were not Christian. They know that they had a different worldview to themselves. So they will talk about this was a pagan custom. This is what the pagans thought. Um, and they will show awareness of the slow adoption of a new religion, that it doesn't happen overnight. Olaf is Christian, but not everybody around him is Christian. One of the things that often happens with this kind of thing, and this is something I've written about myself in the past, is the set dressing will be quite accurate, as it were. They will describe weapons or houses, or clothes or jewellery that is to the writer old-fashioned and that may have been remembered from the original period. But they will express a worldview that fits their own a bit better. So their values are Christian. And they give even pagan characters will tend to have Christian values, even if they are self-consciously described as pagan. 
Uh, and there's an article which I'll uh, cite at the end of this by Lisa Bennett, who looks at them examples as examples of cultural memory. This was a concept developed by Maurice Halvas Pianora and Jan Asman about how cultures remember things that are beyond living memory and how they become part of cultural identity, the memory of earlier events. And it's actually the theoretical background of my own book on Roman dream reports, uh, which is Dreams and Dreaming in the Roman Empire, available to buy from Amazon or from Bloomsbury in paperback or Kindle for about 30 quid. Uh, just to put in a little plug. <laughs> um, I think it's a really useful concept um, for understanding our relationship to the distant past and especially to elements of the distant past where you don't have much in the way of material evidence or textual documents. What you have is memory and stories. I've been writing about King Arthur recently for Den of Geek because there's a new TV series out uh, adapting Bernard Cornwell's The Winter King. Um, and same sort of thing. I suspect those stories were transmitted orally for quite some time before they started to be written down. And you see these remembered bits of what you might call real history, like the Battle of Baden Hill or something, which is a real battle. And then you've, it's mixed up with all this other stuff, like women in lakes. Um, and with the value system of later medieval Christianity. Uh, you will have noticed that the undead, as they appear in this story and in the earlier story I looked at uh, back in 2020, which was from um, Erbigia saga, the undead uh, in the Icelandic sagas are a little bit different from the kind of slightly less substantial ghosts you might see, certainly in early modern literature and to a lesser extent in medieval and ancient, although medieval and ancient literature does have some relatively physical ghosts as well, but they are particularly physical um, in the Icelandic sagas and in Norse stories. So the medieval Icelandic undead were often people who were evil or unpleasant in life as well. So there's a sort of a thought process there where somebody who is a nasty piece of work in life continues to be a nasty piece of work in death. Um, people who were less trouble in life tend to be less trouble in death. They're sometimes referred to as a draugr, but Armin Jakobsen has pointed out that the word draugr is not used for Kilochrap in Lexdala saga. Uh, and the ghosts of Frotha from Erbigia saga, which I covered in the previous uh, episode, don't go under that name either. Uh, it says instead we see words like aptragongo, which is revenants, and rhymelika, which means haunting in these stories. He suggests the word draugr might still be appropriate as a general category for them, um, but actually that word is not attached to these particular ghosts um, in the sagas. And uh, he says troll could also be used for ghosts or witches as well as monsters. So obviously troll can mean what we now imagine as a troll, sort of big lumbering monster, but it could be a ghost or a witch as well. And it's quite hard to choose a word to describe the, the medieval Icelandic undead. That feels like the most accurate <laughs> description, but that doesn't flow very well as part of a story. Um, they're very physical, they're very corporeal, um, more like zombies than insubstantial ghosts, much more like uh, some kind of walking corpse. But we don't tend to call them zombies because we want to distinguish them from the 1960s and onwards mindless shuffling zombies that you see uh, from Night of the Living Dead onwards. So quite often we'll call them revenants. Um, Jakobsen says they should be called spectres rather than revenants, 
But Spectre, again, doesn't really emphasise their physicality in the way that Revenant does. Uh, I think he's suggesting that they're not specifically walking corpses. So Hrap vanishes um, and then his body has the the spearhead, um, which is sort of... I mean, vanishing hitchhikers tend to vanish and leave somebody's coat on their own grave and stuff like that. Um, but it's not it's not as literal as if you picture a zombie taking a spear and then having to walk back to its grave. Hrap is not that. He can vanish and reappear in the grave with the spear. But the physicality does seem to suggest that spectre or ghost doesn't quite do it. Um, They're often found in burial mounds, uh, guarding treasure and definitely not very nice to anyone who disturbs them. And those are the Barrow Whites, as seen in Tolkien, uh, early on in The Lord of the Rings. Frodo and the Hobbits come across Barrow Whites. That is exactly what they are. And white could work as a word. A little bit too reminiscent of Game of Thrones, possibly, but white might actually be the best word for them. Uh, Hrap is technically not a barrow white because he's not in a barrow, but he is guarding his land. Uh, So he's doing the same thing as a barrow white, just in his house instead of in a a burial place. Uh, Jakobsen also compares him to Fafnir the dragon, who was human and turned into a dragon so that he could guard this hoard of treasure. Krupp has kind of turned himself into a monster in order to guard his household. Uh, Jakobsen suggests there are two main categories of medieval Icelandic ghosts, watchmen of tombs and then more aggressive ghosts similar to vampires who attack the living to make them join them. So we saw a little bit of that and the idea of infection in the Frother stories. And I'm just going to kind of leave that there for now. I think the use of the word vampire is interesting. Um, but we are going to look at vampires more detail uh, for our next episode in two months time for Halloween. Um, I'm going to have a look at some vampires. So we'll we'll put a pin in vampires for now. Seals are also a common feature in these stories. They show up in the hauntings at Frother as well. Uh, There seems to be some kind of supernatural connection with seals (laughs) where you get ghosts, you might get sinister seals doing weird things um i guess maybe these are people who live near the sea and who do a lot of emigration and traveling and trade across water so there's a sort of a water monster element to it of course has a very unusual burial which seems to be the start of all the trouble um, when he makes his wife bury him in the doorway Uh, Pagan burials in Iceland tended to be in small household cemeteries. This is the Viking Age of settlement in Iceland. Uh, They tended to be near to but out of direct sight of the settlement and often on a road. So roads and doorways and beaches are all liminal places. They're not quite one place or the other. And there's frequently in many cultures an association with danger at liminal places, with crossroads and roads and also magic uh, or the threat of the supernatural. The wealthy might be in a burial mound and then uh, less wealthy might just be buried. Ship burials, um, which people uh, might associate with Vikings, are fairly rare, um, but probably used for major important leaders. In this saga, Laxdala saga, the woman who founds the settlement, which is Olaf's great-great-grandmother, Una the Deep-Minded, is given a ship burial because she's so important. Lisa Bennett notes that burials of monsters in the sagas tend to be different to burials of uh, other people. So she says, Burials in cairns, gravel, lava pits or shallow graves or cremation on pyres seem to be reserved for sorcerers, berserkir, revenants and trolls. Our cremation also takes quite some time, so there's a lot of effort to be put in to cremate somebody. 
But this is why I um, I put Hrap in a cairn. The, the saga isn't specific about how Hoskald had reburied him, just that he reburied him once he took him out of the doorway. Um, cairns are something you see in earlier uh, Celtic lands. Now, whether they are a Celtic thing or an even earlier um, culture, potentially beaker culture, I think is the word archaeologists use for it. Uh, but you see them around areas that were Celtic by the time we get to a period I don't know anything about, i.e. when the Romans turned up. For example, the Cairn de Barnanez, which is a uh, Neolithic Cairn in Brittany in northern France. Uh, Brittany is a Celtic area uh, inhabited by Britonic Celts. Now, the Cairn is so old that it may in fact be pre-Celtic, um, but that we're, we're so far back in history, it's hard to be sure. And that's something archaeologists argue about. But again, I, I do not have the expertise to have an opinion. Uh, let's just say areas that ended up Celtic <laughs> tend to have burials in cairns. Uh, for the Vikings, not so much. Uh, cremation was one of the popular methods of burial for Romans. Uh, it was one of the options. They went through various fashions for different types of burials. Um the thing about cremation is it is not something Christians do until comparatively recently. So modern Christians usually are fairly happy to be cremated. Um, but uh, in the ancient world, uh, Christians believed uh, that they were going to rise again physically on the last day. So they had to have a body. Um, so cremation would destroy the body. You wouldn't be able to rise again at the second coming. So you didn't get cremated. So cremation is quite specifically pagan. Or in a Christian context, this is presumably partly why cremation gets rid of ghosts. If you destroy the physical body completely, then you can get rid of the ghost or spirit or revenant or spectre or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, of course, is what happens here. And that's still a thing. If you've ever watched the TV series Supernatural, that is how they get rid of ghosts. They burn them or they burn whatever item they've been haunting. Um that's a very long-lived bit of folklore. Um, uh, the idea that the, the key to laying to rest the spirit is to completely destroy the body. Christian burials in medieval Iceland tended to be within the homestead or later in a cemetery connected to a church or chapel. And they started to be big burial grounds for the whole community rather than individual family burials. And again, this is something common with Christianity because Christians believe that death is a, a sleep where you're kind of resting until the second coming and you'll all rise again. There's less fear of dead bodies in Christianity um, than there is in... Uh, same happens with Roman paganism. Romans wanted dead bodies away from themselves because otherwise the Lemurians might get you. And also on a practical level, um, you know, there's some health risks associated with hanging around by dead bodies. Because Christians see them as not dead but asleep in Christ, they don't feel the need to shove them out of the settlement and they keep them closer. And of course, burial in a doorway is not normal. Um, Krupp wants to guard his house, uh, like a Barrow White guarding treasure. Um, the saga doesn't specify how he's buried standing upright. It says he's buried and it says he wants to be buried upright, quite specifically, in the doorway. So I'm assuming that this must be a turf house. So you get these in Iceland, especially medieval Iceland where the house is covered in a layer of turf to keep the heat in in the winter. Um, so I'm sort of assuming that he must be in the turf walls because then he's both buried and upright. Uh, that was the only way I could make that 
work in my head. <laughs> and a doorway like a road or a crossroad is a liminal space. Crossing the threshold is a major theme in Roman magic, for example. Um, and you even see today good luck rituals like the groom carrying the bride across the threshold. It's bad luck if you trip on the threshold. Um, they're liminal spaces, they're places of potential danger. So he has himself buried in this uh, liminal space between the house and the outside so he can guard it. So you can read uh, Laxdale Saga or Laxdale Saga in English translation at the Icelandic Saga database online. Uh, and then a few other things that uh, I have looked at while researching this. The book Troublesome Corpses, Vampires and Revenants from Antiquity to the Present by David Keyworth was what alerted me to the, the story and provides a nice little summary of it. I also had a look at The Troll Inside You, Paranormal Activity in the Medieval North by Armin Jakobsen. And if you have access to academic articles on JSTOR, uh, Jakobsen's Vampires and Watchmen Categorising the Medieval Icelandic Undead in the Journal of English and Germanic Philology, Volume 110. And also Lisa Bennett's Burial Practices as Sites of Cultural Memory in the Islandiga Sugur uh, in Viking and Medieval Scandinavia, Volume 10. And I had a look at a few websites for things like clothing and houses and... Uh, burials and so on, uh, including uh, an article on daily living and clothing at hurstwick.org, um, uh, an article on landscapes of burial contrasting the pagan and Christian paradigms of burial in Viking Age and medieval Iceland at researchgate.net, um, and an article on a large Viking hall in Reykjavik from medieval.eu. So thank you so much for listening. Um, hopefully that's a nice little introduction into the autumn as we come into the colder months, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, have a lovely summer. Um, as I say, next episode will be for Halloween in two months time, roughly, uh, and it will be vampires. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison, with vocals by Olivia Knops. It was produced by Juliet Harrison, with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>